Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you, we figure out what your operations are, we figure out what your processes are, we figure out what your team doesn't like to do, and we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do, it's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plainsight Podcast. My guest today is Scott Downs. He is the CTO of Invisible Technologies and welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Uh, so what is the most exciting thing that you've learned about AI in the last week? <laughs> in the last week, um, man, I, I think it, the interesting thing about it is that any answer that I give is going to date the podcast. Um, so by the time people are hearing this, things will have probably settled. But the biggest intrigue this week is sort of the, I don't know, the palace intrigue of what's going on at OpenAI. Um, which um, I don't think we know the reality. Um, maybe by the time, again, maybe by the time someone's listening to this, um, more of the story will have come out. But I do think it's really interesting to think about like um, OpenAI's stated mission, which is this sort of, and I don't have the mission statement in front of me, but um, very different kind of positioning from OpenAI compared to a pure for-profit company where they talk about like um, the development of an AGI that is good for the world. Um, that's not really um, th the way that at least it, it was framed the last time I looked at it, um, it felt more in alignment with this idea of OpenAI being a research company, a science company, a nonprofit company. And I think that, the interesting thing that's happening in this moment is this whole question of like, to what extent is this a commercial enterprise versus uh, a research company? And I think that, you know, it's easy. I guess my takeaway is nothing to do with AI companies. It's easy to have these kind of like um, mission statements or executive retreats where you come back from the mountaintop and you say, these are our core values. Um, and this is what we believe in, but your lived values are your actual values. And your mission statement is what you're actually chasing. Your the statement doesn't matter. <laughs> it's what is the mission. And I think that this is a, an example of where, again, we'll we'll probably find out there's more to the story, but the, the idea at this moment is that there's a tension between uh, the commercial motivations of, of open, open AI versus the research motivations and, and questions about safety. It's really an interesting moment so mm -hmm. any other week i might be telling you about like oh my gosh there's this new tool that popped up and like if you asked me a week ago i'm really excited about the assistant api and in, in uh in open in open ai's platform and and how 
the concept of new GPTs, plural, that's a really cool concept too. Cool. So yeah, we can dive into a lot of, a lot of different stuff. I liked what you said about there is the reality and there's the stated vision. And then there's the vision we could have the, the mission we could work towards if everything aligned. I just had a conversation with my dad the other day and he was talking about the things as they are versus things as they should be. Uh, and there's always just such a large gap, you know, we're human beings. And this brings to mind, like, we seem to be a entering an age of acceleration. Like, I, I know that the, you know, being inside of AI, AI training and such, we're, we're, we're accelerating very quickly and we're part of this. Um, and so that, what, what effect does that age of acceleration have on our ability to peer into the future and then also try to get to that future that we want to get to rather than the kind of random future that, that nature kind of delivers to us? as a, as a, as, um, you know, randomness basically. So do you think that this is a fundamentally like that you're presuming a lot there? Do you think that the AI moment is, um, uh, an age of acceleration, unlike what we've experienced? I, I personally believe that yes, that, that the, 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 what we're going through right now seems to sort of time is bending back on itself and things are accelerating much faster than they did. And that doesn't mean that they haven't been accelerated already. Like last 300, 400 years have been high acceleration. I'm not saying that that's, that, that, that the pace of change hasn't been very, very high already, but I would say that the pace of change is now accelerating even more than that and potentially exponentially. I mean, I, I think I agree with you, but I, I'll say that I also worked for a mobile company and watched the iPhone keynote. Um, and I also, um, worked for a software company when, uh, internet access was not public, was not common, like public internet access wasn't common. It existed, <laughs> but it wasn't, um, it wasn't a given, for example, like I, I worked for a networking software. I'm just dating myself terribly here, but like I worked for a networking software company at a time where, um, TCP IP configuration and internet access was not a given. Our focus was on connecting computers and in, in lands. <laughs> so the idea of like, oh yeah, we should also support uh, you know the internet on this network wasn't normal. So um, I think that um, I mean I think you're right. Like I, I do think that this is unprecedented, but there have been other unprecedented moments. And um, I don't know. I live for speed. <laughs> like I, I enjoy. I enjoy. I enjoy these moments. I feel like um, when the iPhone announcement was like 2007, um, I have felt uh, at different times over the last, I guess, 16 years that um, we were in an age of deceleration. Hmm. Um, although it's all relative, right? But I, but I mean, I remember when every new hardware announcement from Intel or IBM was really meaningful. Like it would make a material impact on your ability to do your job. I remember when every operating system update was something that we really cared about because it might bring features that fundamentally change your workflow. Um, those moments have become too rare. So it feels to me subjectively um, as someone who's lived through a few of those changes, like a return to form of technology being truly disruptive. 
And generally, I think that the story of b- before this AI moment has been about business model disruption rather than technology disruption. Mm. That is a very good point. And so how has, uh, so going back to this sort of age where the technology is actually improving and then also seeing it from a very intimate angle, um, how is it changing our workflow and how may it also affect the workflow of the people that we work with and work for? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's, uh, that's the exciting aspect of this moment. We don't really know. Um, we know some things and inevitably what that means, again, like I, I actually see it through the lens of, uh, you know, how do you run a business more than the, the technology aspect of things? Like it, it, again, like feels like a return to form for me of being in a space where outcomes are not deterministic, technology decisions have consequence, um, projects may fail. Like I remember there was a moment um, way back when I was working and like, um, you know, I worked for a period of time in like this big corporate environment. And one of the things that we talked about was how, um, and this has been 15 plus years where there was a really high likelihood of failure for it projects, it pro- projects were, <laughs> it's funny even to think about the idea of an it project, because there are no projects now that don't have a technology component. But there would be a project like, oh, we, uh, we want to roll out this new functionality for our workforce, just in the broadest sense. And there would be some kind of budget and there would be some sort of timeline. And at the time, there was this kind of uh, number thrown around that something like 40% of projects were delivered uh, to expectation, as in we did the thing that we said, um, by a certain, by a committed time on a committed budget. And some people would say it was even smaller than that. And, um, you know, like, like everything in the world, I think, you know, this goes in waves and there were, there are moments that are more, I guess, uh, your, to use your terminology, these kind of age of acceleration moments where you have reduced certainty about outcomes. And then there are moments where once the technology is kind of metabolized, you move back towards this space of, uh, of uncertainty. And I think that, um, and I I have a concrete example of that as well. I, I think, um, I started to wrap my brain around this at this ML conference, um, I guess it's been probably five plus years at this point where or a lot of product folks and machine learning folks who are sitting at the sa- on the same panel and I was kind of representing both sides. Um, and it just became really striking to me that having um, achievable outcomes with an element of confidence around the parameters of cost and deliverable date was something that the machine learning people were laughing at. They're like, we don't know. We don't know if this is going to even work. Um, so that was kind of a, I don't know, an aha moment for me. And when I think about how that relates to invisible and the space that we occupy, I think that um, there's a lot of uncertainty 
about being able to shepherd um, these kind of, when I say these kind of, I mean like AI projects to completion and to meet expectation. And it's a place where we can deliver value. So um, I think that like high volatility environments are favorable for us, for our, for our business model. Because we're focused on holistic outcomes. We're not focused on sort of like, here's our software. We throw it over the wall. Go use it. If it worked out for you, awesome. If not, well, tough luck. You know, you paid for it. We're, we're keeping the money. So by being outcomes oriented, we're, you know, we're better suited for these kind of moments. I have just a personal question. Have you ever been, before Invisible, were you in the services? Uh, did you do consulting, maybe software consulting? Uh, and so you have, you have had an experience inside of services and, and software consulting too, as well, right? Yeah. I've, I've kind of been on, I've been on both sides for sure. I was, um, I built out a tech platform for a SaaS company that had a strong services component, but I really held my, I, I held that like, uh, SaaS, SaaS mentality, uh, pretty hard, pretty hard, pretty tight of like, look, I'm building a tool here. You guys come to me, use my tool. Oh yeah, there's some services around the edges. Yeah, but we built software product. We were a software company, and I've also worked in a space where I was sort of like a floating consultant delivering solutions inside of a larger company. Mm. And uh, I've had other experiences too. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's something about that experience of um, sort of the challenge of getting over with pure SaaS. Um, and also the inherent messiness and it's very personal to deliver service oriented, kind of have a service oriented mentality where you know that every solution is going to be different. There's no real repeatability, but I, but I, I actually think that that's like, um, it's not that it's a false dichotomy. It's, it's, it's real. It, it exists in the world, but I think that resolving that is a big part of our mission and invisible is to say like, you want to have the best of SaaS platforms, uh, which is to say, you know, structure and repeatability, but it's held in tension with the idea of having highly customizable outcome-driven solutions. And sometimes the weak side of, of that approach would be like, uh, you might end up having every solution being a little bit different and no ability to scale and, uh, and not, not a strong enough opinion. Like if you're in a service-oriented mentality, sometimes you're just sort of a, a worker bee. So we want to combine the best of, of each of those worlds, the customization, personalization, and outcome orientation of services with the strong structure and expertise and opinion baked into a platform um, the way a SaaS platform works. And, and I'm not sure that'll leave the question. Yes, no, I it did. It, it, it did, and it asked the question that I had follow-up questions. So thank you for not a, not a, a so thank you for cutting out the process where I had to ask the follow-up question. And now I've got another follow-up question, which is, how has it been? What has that evolution been like for you coming into this and then, then having this lofty goal? It's a beautiful lofty goal, which attracts me into Invisible as well, which is like, how do you, how do you do both of those things? And how has that evolution come? And then we can bring it back later to AI and like, where does AI fit into that? Well, I'll give you a really like personal experience kind of answer. Like, so I worked, my first software company um, that I worked for, we uh, created software that was delivered on CDs or floppy disks that lived inside of a paper box 
that was shipped to Comp USA's all around the country. Um, it had a paper manual. I wrote it. Um, so uh, the progression of software companies from sort of like um, installable uh, software that runs on your computer to then I spent uh, at a, like a later stage of my life built a cloud-based SaaS platform. Like, so, okay. There was some on-prem installs there too, but just kind of skip ahead. Like it used to be that a software company delivered a shiny disk um, to a physical location. And then somewhere along the line, it became that a soft, it became the case that a software company delivered a solution that was running somewhere else and you would have a web-based interface to access it. And I think that the services mentality um, around around software is just kind of a natural evolution of, of seeing the ways that those things have failed that, or, or didn't get fully to the ambition, uh, didn't fully fulfill the ambition that we started with, with those sorts of things. So, um, I think like, uh, there needs to be kind of a fundamental recognition of, um, humans being humans and businesses having core priorities that aren't related to installing software or maintaining software or learning software. It's more just, how can I get my problem solved? And over time, there's been a natural progression from like saying, oh, the technology solves a narrow slice of the problem. Like we give you floppy disks and you then go figure it out to, you don't have to worry about installing it. You don't have to worry about learning some random new stuff. Um, instead, what we're focused on is delivering a solution. And then, uh, so it's a really interesting vision you just mentioned of essentially we can fix all of these things, like all of those problems that any user runs into. I'll give an example of, of so I'm down here in Argentina. I, uh, I have a Google Pixel phone and I, um, I use it to download apps. There's a specific app I want to download inside in, in Argentina. In order to do that, I have to change my location to Argentina. And due to Google's laws, I, uh, their, their requirements, I will lose access to my ability to use Google Play in the United States. And there will be all these uncertain things that happen once I do that, just so I can download one, one sort of app. And so, so I spent like an hour and a half yesterday uh, through the Google chat, uh, trying to get some sort of support to understand this. And uh, they told me it wasn't possible after many, many different tries. And so like, there's all these problems associated with software. And that was just me as a consumer trying to figure out this random thing. Now we take it into a business and a business just, there's so much complexity in, inside of businesses and the vision you mentioned, and this relates directly to AI as well, because I've been starting to notice that so many of the problems that I, uh, that block me from doing a lot of things are now being solved by ChatGPT. And that's just the consumer implement implementation. And you guys are on the back end. You guys are doing API work where you're where you're directly working with the OpenAI API and um, uh, solving really like repeatable problems and stuff like that. And I'd love to dig into what that looks like, whether they're actually repeatable. Um, but are we like, what's your take on the future we're going to live in? Is it going to be that we only interact with the AI and the AI fixes all these problems? Is it going to be invisible fixing all these problems? Like what, what is the relationship we're going to have to AI in this world where 
a lot of that complexity may sort of just disappear, but then there should be new complexity, right? As well. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you pose such a broad question that I'll take a narrow slice <laughs> where I feel some element of certainty. Um, and I think there's something that you just said that I would, I would challenge the assumption there. I think it's really interesting if you think about like, um, an API is a technique of talking to a software platform, but the software platform, the work that software does is extremely variable. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is really interesting and innovative, um, about how you apply AI tech solutions into a larger landscape of solving business problems is fundamentally different than the way that you would approach maybe some other API that you've happened to call like Salesforce or uh, storing data on an S3 bucket in AWS cloud. Um, and it's really about the nature of the work. If you think about, and, and the expectations of outcomes. So if you think about the work that's performed when you call an API to save some amount of data to some cloud storage, I mean, the outcome's quite clear. Um, there's no kind of in-between grounds. Either it succeeds or it fails. So criteria for success are super clear. Um, and I think that um, one of the bigger challenges with people figuring out how to use AI productively is to understand that technology is not all technology is not the same. All API calls aren't the same. Um, all software platforms are not the same. And this AI thing is fundamentally different. It's fundamentally different in that it's not a calculator. Um, you might see like two plus two is always equal to four in a calculator. And if the calculator returns something different, you throw it away. Um, that's really not the way that AI works. It's not the positioning of AI in... Um, uh, in any meaningful business process to drive a desirable outcome. The behavior of AI, uh, let, let's just, that's such a broad term too. Let's just say the behavior of generative AIs like a chat GPT more resembles the behavior of a human in that it might require supervision. It might be doing uh, subjective work with outcomes that are non-binary. They could be range from bad to fair to good to great. Um, and they may not be the same from one day to the next. So I think that, and, and I'm not trying to just like sell our platform here, but I think that uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about having built a platform that orchestrates human labor and, and tech integrations um, with what we built here at Invisible um, is that we've, we've been building a platform that creates the right kind of structures around human work to guarantee quality. Mm -hmm. The work performed by a GPT in that kind of a, in, in those kind of, as we would call them, pro business processes, um, they also need virtual managers. They also need supervision. They also need QA. They also need periodic audits. And they also um, provide outcomes that are more, uh, more subjective uh, and complex in and variable um, than calling a Salesforce API or, or an AWS API. So as a result, like that's the, that's the flip side of the power, right? So if you think about like 
we've been on this long progression from putting all the burden of even installing and hosting your software on your own machine, which you maybe even had to build yourself, right? All the way up to more and more kind of outcomes oriented, uh, human centered processes where people don't even have to install software. They just log on to a website. They may, may not even have to go to the website. They just describe what they need and they get the outcome. Um, that services layer, being able to scale up services is one of the fundamental business problems that we're trying to address in Invisible. And AI is, is such an interesting fit in that space because what we're seeing is the possibility to augment human insight with, with AI to be in that same kind of space of the bridge between here's a complex te tech platform that does a bunch of stuff, but do you have time to learn it? Do you have time to figure out how it applies to your problem? Um, our thesis or the way that we've lived, like our lived values at, at Invisible have been to say, okay, we'll put humans in there. You don't have to pay extra. We'll put humans in there. We'll coordinate all this stuff for you. We'll do consulting work for free. Like we'll just make sure your process works. But over time, of course, what's going to happen is we're going to have more opportunities for technology to take a chunk, take a bite out of that problem and to do work that is subjective, but still repeatable and scalable. Okay, that's very interesting. It is, as you just said that, it's fascinating because I'm going, I'm going to say things and I would love for you to sort of fact check me as well. Is it true that in the AI training space, we have all these researchers who are trying to figure out how to automate these things from a perspective that maybe Facebook or Google had, which was we get the human out of there. We don't want the human there. We want to automate all this. And so they built these machine learning models um, and then they were, is it accurate that they were quite surprised at the amount of human labor required to scale RLHF? Is that an accurate story of what happened? Were these researchers su surprised by that? Um, I don't, I don't know that I would really frame it that way. I mean, I think that, um, I, I, I won't speak for anybody but myself and I'll just say, my expectation was that this would have taken longer, mm. that there's definitely been uh, a really rapid progression of um, what we need in terms of human data in order to mature foundational models. Mm. And there's been a rapid progression towards higher and higher expertise from data trainers. So I, I don't know, I mean, my instincts, were that we would have spent probably a few more years with um, kind of low complexity tasks being modeled through human behavior. And I, I think part of the, I mean, I think really there's a strong question here, which is like, why is it that, um, that autonomous driving has progressed so much more slowly than something that's more focused on um, language. And, uh, it kind of, look, the answer is kind of right there in the question, but I'll just say like, um, my surprise, my biggest surprise was, has been how quickly we've progressed to needing extreme levels of expertise, domain specific expertise in order to be providing meaningful data for the, for the mm -hmm. generative AI. So, mm -hmm. At the example that I have come back to many times um, 
is some of the work that we've done for some of our clients where we're bringing in uh, PhDs, domain experts, um, and at the same time, the popular understanding of data trainers is that they're performing kind of low complexity, hot dog, not hot dog type of work. Um, when in reality, we're already at a place where the human feedback that's required to have meaningful RLHF, pretty advanced, pretty, pretty far along. Um, and it, you know, draw your own conclusions from that. But I would just say the trajectory that has surprised me is how quickly we've moved into human expertise being the, the source of data training rather than just human uh, instinct. I, I, I'll say that in a different way. Um, when you teach young people how to drive cars, um, they pick it up pretty quickly. And this could lead to a whole conversation about world models and what, but just, just look at the facts of it. Like human beings can learn how to drive pretty quickly. Um, and yet, uh, autonomous driving systems have not progressed as rapidly as you would expect. Meanwhile, on the other side of the coin, like, um, Turing test, like have a conversation with a bot, uh, see if it can convince you it's human. Man, that stuff's gone really fast. Yep. And that was the that was the big thing that everybody thought would be like that. That's the big signal that we're here. Uh, but we passed that signal with living colors, and all all of a sudden now we have to come up with a whole bunch of other ways to f determine where we are and on this a AGI spectrum. Um, That's right, could be an interesting question to ask you about. Do you think we're there yet? Uh, but I, but I, I want to go back to why I asked that question about the human in the loop, because it's so strange to me. It's so serendipitous to me that invisible started with this, this, this idea of in 2015 of that, this, the human is essential. And there's like a long period of time that started probably in 2006, maybe even back to the 1980s, which is just that, you know, the human's going away. We don't need the human anymore. And then as a part of this technology that people predicted would be the epic, the peak of humans going away, somehow invisible became this essential part with this idea that humans be are an essential part and that it doesn't look like that's going away, that that, as you just said, that human expertise is going to just become more important as the model gets more and more trained and you get into that 20%. Um, now, I don't really have a question here. I just have a sort of like a, the, the, the statement there. And I guess we could just, is that accurate? Um, what do you think about what I said? I mean, I don't have the same confidence that um, that human feedback will always be required in order to train foundational models. So, I, and that's not what I said, I, or that's not what I meant to say. It was more about like, as... So AI training will continue to exist, but then there are all these other imp implications. There's all this other work that can be done using AI and the human element seems to be important in that, uh, in that AI work. Yeah. The, hu the human element is, I, I'm a, I'm a long-term buyer on humanity, <laughs> but, but I think that, um, as it relates to the specific task of sort of providing training data for foundational models, maybe not as much, mm -hmm. but I, but I think um the the point there that i think is meaningful is that um we don't um we don't have kind of a um we don't have a a, a center a heart of a, a value system you can't you can't outsource that 
Yeah. Right. So you, to understand what your what your desired outcomes are, we're trying to. Uh, I I I guess I could put this in. Um, you can see this as optimistic, or you can see it as pessimistic. But I think that a lot of what human activity has been in the workplace um, for a long time is sort of uh, automatic mechanistic behavior that ever since, I don't know, pick a, pick a year, pick a date, um, rather than our um, technology enabling uh, people to be people and to excel at the human aspects of their job, we've turned humans into inferior machines. Um, to our detriment as a species, uh, to our detriment in terms of the future of, of the human race. And I think that um, the, uh, the work that a lot of people do in their day-to-day -day lives is they go and they get in a box with wheels and they go to a box that's stacked up on top of other boxes. And they go to do the same thing that's being done in the other boxes around them. And they don't have a sense of meaning and purpose. And they're, they're literally just mimicking the behaviors of uh, the other people in the other boxes. Um, and they're, that's just wildly dehumanizing and depressing to think about. But the optimistic uh, opposite side of the coin is to say that um, as we think about ways to take um, the kind of normal work, the normal drudgery of business and move more and more of that to... Uh, to different, I don't want to say to processes or to automations. I think it's broader than that. Like I think technology hits at multiple levels. If you think about like um, the work of someone, like you don't have to shuffle papers anymore. Cool. Um, you don't have to file anymore. Okay, cool. We've already, we've already got kind of categorization and classification. You don't have to um, uh, think about doing uh, mindless robotic tasks anymore. I, I just kind of see like everybody looking up from their desk and looking around and saying, what am I doing and why, why am I here? Not performing the, uh, the work of an automaton. Um, and the way that technology hits at multiple levels there is it's not just displacement of the literal work they've been doing through the day, but it's also uh, deconstructing or re-envisioning the processes that they're following, the larger frame of like, what should a marketing department do or what should a finance department do? Not just the literal individual tasks of the day, but an overall optimized structure. And then you start to edge out places where there's work that could only be performed by humans today or yesterday, um, but actually still is fairly mechanistic. Like here's a, here's a customer service call that comes in and there, there's a finite number of potential outcomes and you know, decision trees, like the IVRs. There are ways to solve this that are dehumanizing for the caller. Yeah. So we, okay, well, we'll just like put a friendly voice over someone doing uh, the diagnostic work of understanding their problem space. But what if, what if the diagnostic work is also something that can be, mm -hmm. I hesitate, automated, but implemented through technology in a way that's not dehumanizing. And all of a sudden you have, that person who's 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 responsible for that work, they don't have to do the literal work of walking an answer to the to the customer. They don't have to do the work of sorting through all the potential outcomes. They stop being a database. They stop being a search engine, and hopefully, they just start being a human being. 
And then they can think about, well, what's best for the client or what's best for my business? What objectives am I trying to achieve? That's where we're progressing. And I think that so much like 80 plus, 90 plus percent of the work that people do in their jobs from day to day is sort of that automatic behavior of trying to do in their little box what other people in similar boxes are doing. Okay, this gets into a very interesting philosophical question. Uh, you, you, you had mentioned that in the boxes that we're all sort of um, looking at what, what's happening in the other boxes, and that's where our desires come from. Uh, there's a great talk that uh, Stephen Wolfram gave recently on TED uh, a couple weeks ago um, about uh, computational irreducibility and uh, the, what he calls the Rulliard space, which is the space of all possible computations in the universe and really interesting content in those things. But his ultimate point, and I interviewed him on my personal podcast a, a few years ago, is that, and we talked about this before, this current generative AI, is that once computers can do all the work that we want them to do, then we have to figure out, well, what is it that we want to do? Um, and that is like a deep existential question as well, because it, it, like it, it kind of brings in a layer, which is like, well, who am I? What am I? And then what do I want to do? You don't always have to go back that far, but it, it kind of helps you figure out what, what you want. Um, is that accurate? Do you like, if it is accurate, where does invisible play in that process of helping pe helping our customers figure out what it is they want to do? Um, what, what's your take on this, this, the, the, the change of work and helping us to figure out our own desires? Yeah, I mean, I, I see it almost identically. I think that um, you can see it through lots of different um, different lenses. But I would say, like one of the things that I personally think about as I am trying to, you know, grow up, become more mature, <laughs> um, be better at this whole living thing, mm -hmm. is I find that um, the work that I do in some cases is a distraction from the question of who I am and what I want to be doing. And there's a natural tendency for those of us who are like really ambitious or high energy, like I can fill up my brain with all these activities. Um, and there's an element of that that feels like at, at a certain point, you may start to feel like that's a distraction. Yeah. Like, what do I really want to be doing? What kind of change do I want to make in the world? Uh, don't think about it. Cram it back down. Um, go do some more things. Yeah. Stay busy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I feel like we're playing that out in, in the modern human's relationship to work is something like that. And I think that maybe there's some deep wiring of like um, chase, chasing your prey. <laughs> your, like human survival once required a deep commitment to daily work in order to survive. And I'm going to sound idealistic for a second, but I, I look at the the resources that exist on this planet and our ability to take advantage of that opportunity that I feel like there's a, there's a heaven here already. If we just choose to see it, that nobody has to be hungry. Nobody has to suffer in, in those ways. Like we can, we can meet some basic human needs. I, I'm a, you know, I'm a Star Trek guy, like old Star Trek, you know, mm -hmm. like there's a world that we could get to where we might be beyond currency. And what we're thinking about is instead of thinking in scarcity, we're thinking like, what are your dreams that you wish to pursue? Um, and I think that um, it's, not, it's no surprise that questions like UBI, like universal basic income, are tied deeply to this idea of technology that uh, 
kind of obviates the need for certain types of drudgery. And I think that that question of like, what do I want to be doing and who am I and why am I here is um, that, of course, it's probably your thing that you're thinking about every day and I'm thinking, but humanity is at that point. Like we are at a historical moment. And if there's anything that characterizes this moment, I, I, I kind of go back to that initial framing. I, I think it's less an age of acceleration and more an age of like, uh, you could pick the Kurzweil, like singularity. Or like, there, there does seem like there's a fundamental thing that's happening here where we may be transcending um, the, the need for human work in the way that it was once conceived. And one of the cool things about Invisible is that we have continued to steer our ship right into that storm, right into the question of what is work? Um, what should a human being, being be doing? How do we structure work in a way to get us to that point where we can move at the speed of thought and idea um, and not be dragged down by the details? And one of the things that I found compelling, like some people may say, if they're looking at Invisible's history, that we sort of had a pivot. Uh, from a virtual assistant service to an operations innovation type. I don't, I don't think it's a pivot, really. I think it's kind of the same thing. I think that maybe there's a slightly different buyer, but I still attach very strongly to this vision that um, something that Francis talked about many years ago, and I don't even know if people are aware of this or attached to this part of our history, but it's deeply attached for me. The idea of a one-person IPO, like the idea, like what if there was a company that could so effortlessly scale up your business, understands the details of what a business needs, a busyness, what does a busyness need in order to, to accomplish goals and uh, just take all those details out of the way. And the, the point here that we're trying to accomplish with the platform and with the business, with the technology that we're like all this is supposed to be elevating uh, human beings to a place where they can decide what are the outcomes that I want and not be ground down by the details of getting there. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of the fundamental modern hum human experience. I have a dream, I have a vision, but oh my God, the stuff I have to do to get from there to here, from here to there. And we, we are in the getting you from point A to point B business. So you don't have to think about it. And that, that's what drew me to Invisible. That's what drew me to Cosmos, specifically this new idea of the infinity, all the di different infinity BUs, because we have the Everest coming back from when I first met Francis in 2012. Um, that's sort of like that thing that was before Invisible, before Invisible somewhat pivoted from the that the assistant idea, because that was brought back at that at original point. And it's just like the space of possible uh, one-man IPOs is growing. Um, and nobody really thought of it as this potential thing. All the investors didn't really bite. Um, and, and because they all thought like, it's not just one vertical, it's not one SaaS, like what you were talking about earlier is that you do the fundamentals vertical that you're solving for, and you have your know, services related to that software automated tool that will fix those things that arise in the edge cases. But some of those edge cases, we don't really want to deal with those. Um, and so like that model, uh, we're transcending it. Uh, and then we're creating a lot of other business units that could also solve different aspects of it, um, which is, is very interesting. Very excited to, to participate in that. And it seems that has anybody ever just described, uh, invisible as a human potential company? 
Has that ever been part of what we talk about? Sure, for sure. And I know there was a point in time where we were approaching this from the marketing side of things. And um, one of the, this was, there was a point in time where the entirety of the marketing department was basically me and Haley. Um, and one of the things that I was really uh, attached to back then was um, I liked Red Bull's slogan. I like Red Bull gives you wings. And I used to reference that all the time that I think that um, it's it's similar to the Iron Man narrative, right? Like that our job as a as a company and as a, as a set of technologies, as a collection of services, we're here to elevate human potential. We're we're your wings. We're your Iron Man suit, and uh, you don't have to worry about the details. We we are um, all about elevating. Cool. Okay. So last 10 minutes left. Uh, do you think we're at AGI? Uh, and if not, what, <laughs> what, uh, what are the, what are your, what is your evolving framework for how to actually think about that question? I kind of, kind of do. I mean, I, interesting. I, I, I mean, all, all these kinds of questions about things like that end up being debates over how you define it. Um, but I, I think that we've already reached a place that was surpri that's surprising and transformative. And if you slam the door shut on any future progression, the process of integrating um, the impact of generative AIs into the way that businesses run, the way that people live their lives, it's already a revolution. It's already transformative. It's already going to change the game for everybody. And I think one of the things that I... So I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of prompt engineering. Um, it reminds me like of uh, Oracle at Delphi kind of a situation of like, it's it's almost like an alien intelligence has arrived. I mean, it's not almost that. It's literally that. It's literally, it may not be super, uh, like from space. Um, it's not an interstellar intelligence, but it definitely is an alien intelligence in the sense that it works by rules that are a little different than the rules we work by. And the outcomes of what you get from speaking to one of, to a generative AI, let's just, just say GPT, you will continually be surprised and you may find that changes in the way that you ask a question have significant impact. The context of the conversation and where you progress has an impact. It just, it very much feels like, um, this alien intelligence has arrived on the planet and we're still trying to figure out how to contend with it and understand the parameters and boundaries of it. And not that we know exactly what it does or is capable of, but more like we're experimenting to understand the capabilities. And the fact is, there's still people back in the lab creating new <laughs> alien intelligence that, that will take decades to, to really kind of map out the boundaries of. So we're at a place where... Um, you know, I joke about this all the time that everybody's saying like, oh, here's a new LLM that you can run on your iPhone 6. And um, like, isn't that enough? <laughs> isn't that enough of a revolution to realize like, hang on, guys, like we're going to be internalizing this forever. One of the things that surprises me when I look at the progression of the Internet and of, of technology over the last 20, 30 years, I guess over 30 years at this point, but just watching 
um, the way things have gone. I'm often surprised at how late in the game, there was one the other day, it was like YouTube. I, I feel like YouTube's been around forever, but it's newer than I thought it was. Um, Gmail feels like it's been around forever, but come to think of it, there was a time when Gmail didn't exist. I feel like the sort of the Gmail and YouTube of AI is something that's going to exist in three or four years. And in 12, 15 years, we're going to go, how did the world exist without that? And I mean, this may sound like thoroughly conventional and lame, but the impact of YouTube is massive. It's massive on every single time you need to fix your sink um, or learn how to cook fondant potatoes, which I did last night. Um, like the, the exposure, like the ability to see human knowledge expressed in video form, like that existed as a concept. Um, there certainly were online videos, but the idea of there being a central place where you can answer almost any question become an expert in any field. Wow, that's amazing. Now, what's, what are going to be the applications of AI over the next few years that become so deeply ingrained, like a search engine or a YouTube um, or free email, mm. like change the way that you think about how you communicate with others and how you live your life. And it, it's coming. It's coming soon. It'll be there. Um, we just, like, it's, it's not about the raw capability. It's about the, the packaging um, or yeah. yeah yeah so let's talk a little bit about that why why is the first you know we talked about self-driving cars and for most people idea of ai that was it self-driving cars it's going to view the street view all the environment of the street view all the random stuff happening and figure that out so that people can drive safer drive without driving and you know do all these things uh and then somehow it surprised me maybe surprised you uh llms came out uh, and it's language and it's why is it in a chatbot? Why is the consumer implementation of AI so focused on chatbots right now? And how will that change over time, if at all? Oh, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, I actually, I mean, I don't think that the impact of LLMs is captive to chatbots. Um, clearly not. Uh, but I think that um, human language and human intelligence are, this is kind of that Wittgenstein, Chomsky, kind of like they're the same thing. Like in my opinion, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really fully believe in like uh, world models being relevant to human intelligence. It's more that, um, the way that language is structured is the way that thought is structured. We think in language and that's why um, language-based AI makes sense to us. Another way of saying that is I always thought it was super weird and arbitrary that a Turing test was meaningful. Like who the, who the heck cares? Like the artificial intelligence, surely that's an objective fact separate from how, how convincing it is to an average dude. Um, and yet somehow we center on that as being like proof of artificial intelligence as if we're something so special. Um, mm. I, I think that language as a frame has extremely broad implications that you could think of music as a language or playing chess as a language or, 
or go. Um, and, and I think that, um, when you, uh, when you imagine, uh, the future of AI, the future of technology, um, as impacted by the existence of LLMs, um, chatbots are like the least interesting part. And okay, so five minutes left. What is the most interesting part behind the scenes, uh, like with an API? Uh, what are the things that you've already seen done or that you're really, really excited about maybe doing in the future? Well, I mean, I think the thing that excites me the most um, is assembling uh, solutions in problem spaces um, that there's a power to the op the concept of a process. What I was trying to express earlier is that often when we think about automation or AI, we think at the step level, we think of an, an individual task that may or may not be automated, but the structure of solutions is, is even more impactful. So if you think about it, like, I think about it as a CTO, right? Like I've never, I've never been a CTO who like thought my job is just to manage engineers, right? Like I think the product vision and direction has always been critical to me to understanding like the way to create an impact. And I think that if you imagined uh, our notion of process in the form of like an org structure, Product-y type people think about processes and engineering type people think about components of those processes, whether they be steps or collections of steps. And the, the way that we create impact in the world is through having meaningful processes. So it's kind of like uh, you can, um, you could see AI technology as solving really specific steps in larger processes. But the idea of AI constructing complete processes, oh, which wow. are then of smaller steps, some of which are AI powered. That's that's where you start to get an interesting into interesting spaces. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh if uh, if there's one thing you can point uh, any of our listeners who are mostly agents, uh people who are interested in Invisible, people who are interested in working at a divisible, if there's one thing you can point them to that uh, you want them to see that we're working on or that just may, may be of interest, maybe a piece of content. What, what is it? Well, I, I, we did a walkthrough of Workplace, which is the, the next generation name of our platforms, the next generation of our platform. And whether it's agents or partners, I think that a, a big part of the vision of the platform that has yet remained somewhat unfulfilled is the way that we engage directly with clients. And the assumption that a services model um, requires, um, like, uh, well, let me put it in the positive way instead of a negative way. Um, we should assume that any modern solution to give an optimal client experience is some combination of people and technology. This is core to our, our mission, our values. Right now, I think we're under, uh, under the bar on the way that our technology is directly useful for clients, whether that be in the form of reporting, uh, visualizing processes as they're executing, uh, visualizing the possibilities of processes that we can build for our clients. We've got a lot of work to do in order to bring that tech closer to clients. And there's some, there are bad habits that you can get into if you skew too hard towards everything being human driven and customized. There has to be some, some ability to have 
repeatable solutions um, at scale where technology is directly in the hands of our clients. That doesn't mean giving them the floppy disks. It doesn't mean that they have to install the software and figure everything out, uh -huh. but it actually does mean connecting them to the outcomes and connecting to their desires. That's very cool. So if anybody's listening and wants access to that uh, workplace talk that Scott gave, uh, please send me a DM on Slack uh, if you're already part of Invisible. Um, so uh, thank you so much, Scott. Thanks. See you next time. Hey, thanks for tuning into Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.